Are we already doing it? I sh- we should have been, but now we are. Ooh. So that'll be a fun non sequitur start. Yeah, now that we've explained that it's a non sequitur, <laughs> it's very fun. <laughs> Welcome to Super Superstitious, the paranormal <laughs> podcast about the science of the strange and the probabilities of the paranormal podcast. <laughs> It's been a minute. We took a week off, and you know what? We liked it. We liked it a lot. We actually didn't like the week. We, we were very busy. We had a lot yeah. going on, and we're going to we, keep- we, we love doing this. We like being able to get things we actually have to get done done. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So we may actually do a bi-weekly schedule for the remainder of the field season, which mm-hmm. um, is what you're currently experiencing, Mr. Shell. By it, the way, this is Wyatt. And on the other mic is Jake. And uh, yeah, my field season is going to last until probably mid-September. And you'll be busy as fuck in that time. Yep. I wish there was an animal I could relate it to, but I can't, I can't think, think of a single of thing. any of them. So yeah. it will be like that for a bit. Yeah. Now, the upside is that you know, last year during field season, I basically didn't see or hear from you for the entirety of the summer, and it was very, very sad. Yeah, I didn't enjoy it either. No. Um, so I'm enjoying at least having the opportunity to... Uh, corral you into one spot for one day every other week and get to hang out with you for an hour or so it is a similar delight for yours truly so excellent so we'll keep on cranking out the episodes will be a little bit more infrequent in that time hopefully i'll also use to make more of my own stuff which will include uh some sciencey videos i make some sciencey videos on youtube.com y'all should check it out with the labs uh, the show is called project science i just made a recent Short thing. It was like a one-minute science video. I think I'm going to make more of them. A whole new series called Withy Labs Short Shorts. Oh, that's hilarious. I'm going to start wearing... I have some cutoffs I'm going to wear for every that episode. That is awesome. So that's the thing that's going to happen. I'm so um, excited by that. <laughs> and I'll also, more importantly, get back in gear with uh, actually putting together all the other stuff we do for this show. Sure. Like our other social media accounts and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, I still haven't put any of our episodes on YouTube yet, so I need to do that. Oh, well, you know... One thing at a time, my man. Yeah, so that'll hopefully all happen this summer as well. Enough news. Let's, yeah, what right. are we going to talk about today? We picked another broad topic, basically using the power of another person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> ultimate random variable, other people. <laughs> you there, boy. Boy. What should we talk about? And uh, I guess friend of the show, acquaintance of the show, Josh, <laughs> said uh, I something- met Josh and said, hey, what should we do? Yeah, and he said something with water. And so now we're doing a episode about oceanic ocean. weirdness. Indeed. And I took some liberty, so I guess I just did something with water. <laughs> I guess maybe we didn't specifically say the ocean. I thought we might have, but Wetness. it doesn't matter. You know, it yeah. It got us here. We got our stories. <laughs> <laughs> and you're gonna listen to them right now. God damn it. No. Yeah. Alright, take it away, Mr. Shell. Oh my goodness, I'm starting. So I would like to kick today off on the southern continent of Australia. Um, and its neighboring island of New Zealand, uh, lands of the koalas and kiwis, um, respectively. In, indeed. Um, the Australia most folks know was only just recently colonized um, in the late 18th century by the British, but the continent has been inhabited by Aboriginal people for more than 60,000 years, the first of whom arrived by land bridge from Southeast Asia. Cool. Australia is home to an amazing array of creatures, so many, in fact, that despite the continent mostly being comprised of arid desert ecosystems, it is characterized as a mega-diverse country. Are you going to do the bunyip? Maybe. Ooh, I'm it excited. May be, it may be involved in this tale. Okay, keep going. 
Australia has the greatest number of reptiles of any country, around 755 species. I didn't know that. And of an estimated 250,000 species of fungi, only 5% have actually been described. Holy shit. Right. Um, And that's the sporty fungi, the boozy fungi, (laughs) and the funny fungi. Yeah. (laughs) The end. (laughs) And that's all I have today. <laughs> um, Australia- it was all an excuse to get up to some kind of f- fungi plant. That's right. Um, Australia's fauna also have a well-known reputation for surprisingly fearsome physiologies and life histories, I would say. Uh, to name just a handful, blue-ringed octopus, as venomous as it is beautiful. And that thing is very beautiful. <laughs> um, <laughs> very beautiful. <laughs> Uh, bulldog ants, uh, great vision, great jumping ability, super big stings. jowls, big jowls, exactly. They're basically flightless wasps that can and will chase after you and kill you. And the Australian redback and funnelweb spiders, um, mm, yeah. either of which could send you to the hospital with a little chomp. Uh, so these features, along with the fact that much of the continent is largely uninhabitable for most people, namely because it's too dry and hot. Uh, means Australia can quickly take on a sort of ruggedly eerie and threatening air of mystery. Mm-hmm. And this is the fitting backdrop for my sort of collective segment today. Um, I have four ostensibly separate phenomena, but I'd like to make the case that they may ultimately be lumped together and are perhaps one um, one and the same by this point. Cool. That's neat because we've covered a couple different stories where people have talked about a bunch of disparate sightings of things that they think all belong to one particular creature, like different misidentified things that might have all been, oh, it was all the moss man. It's like, no, you just saw a bunch of different weird stuff in the swamps of Florida. Right. Um, things like that. Now we have kind of the opposite where people are all saying they saw this one type of monster or this other kind of monster. It's like, actually, it's all probably this one other thing. This other I look forward to seeing where this goes. Awesome. I was hoping you would. The first brief tale comes out of an article in the New Zealand Times uh, from May 9th, 1883. So we're fully 116 years before The Matrix was released. Um, <laughs> and this reads as follows. Quote, excitement near Masterton, unknown creature at large, curly hair, short legs, and broad muzzle, dogs sent after it, one of the dogs flayed by it, rest oh of the gosh. dogs running away, probably with their tails between their legs, but the reporter overlooking this convention. <laughs> so he's like trying to be cute, but anyway. <laughs> After the horrifying idea of a dog being flayed by some <laughs> creature, they, they had their tails between their legs, probably. I wasn't paying enough I attention wasn't there. to that detail. I would never do it myself because <laughs> I don't have a tail. I'm not a dog, you silly. Um, So, removing size from the equation, the so-called Masterton Monster, um, as it's come to be known, sounds a bit like a vicious otter to me. Otters are actually more ferocious than their playful demeanor and cute appearance let on. Mm. Um, Yeah, sea otters are known for being like really cute and cuddly and stuff, but river otters will fuck you up. They will indeed. But this is the kind of fierceness that might bite your finger off, given the opportunity, rather than the fierceness that flays a dog. Yes. <laughs> a little bit of uh, different extremes of they'll, ferocity. They'll there. bite you, but they won't necessarily kill your pets. Um, <laughs> and they won't necessarily send the rest of the dogs running away. I mean, you can assume that anything that somehow removes all the skin off of one dog <laughs> will scare all the other dogs, but yeah, I don't think it's an otter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
Furthermore, there are no otters in Australia or New Zealand. There you go. I didn't think there were. I was, but I was ready to believe whatever you told me because I don't know enough about really anything. Fair enough. I'm very dumb. I am too. It's a miracle we're even <laughs> in the professions we're in. <laughs> um, they do have Rakali, maybe I'm mispronouncing this, R-A-K-A-L-I, which are very cute otter-like rodents, hmm. colloquially referred to as water rats. No. But these are hardly of dog fling size or temperament, as, <laughs> as far as I understand. Um, so, another tale. This story begins in an area known as Wailanembi. Wailanembi? Wailanembi. Yeah, there you go. Uh, located near the township of Euroa in Victoria. So, towards the south and east of the Australian continent, for folks who aren't really familiar with the layout of that area. It is here that, since as early as 1884, locals have claimed a 30-foot-long creature has occupied the nearby swamps. See? Water. (laughs) 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 On, On February 25th, 1890, the Brisbane Courier published the following article, which they claimed was written by the Euroa correspondent of the Melbourne Argus, which is another paper. Melbourne. Melbourne, yep. Quote, Considerable excitement has been caused in Euroa by reports as to an extraordinary extraordinary animal, they hyphenated it, so it made me read it weird, <laughs> having been seen in a swamp at Wilanembe, uh, about 14 miles distant. The swamp is about 150 yards across, and a creek flows through it. For six years or more, the swamp is reputed to have been the haunt of something abnormal. Tales being told of dogs flying out of the place. Just <laughs> <laughs> imagine them end over and Yeah, just... exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and never again being and never again being induced to enter. I was hoping they would say never again being seen. <laughs> just into orbit. <laughs> yes. Um, joining our friend Spring Hill Jack. Um, last week, a couple of young men went into the swamp for the purpose of cutting reeds, which are six feet high and very thick, and they were alarmed by a sudden splashing and snorting near at hand, and the rushes waved as if allowing passage to some large animal. They quickly retired, but next day, one ventured back to carry out the reeds he had cut, when he was again alarmed by strange sounds. He leaped upon a log. He leapt upon a log? And at some 30 paces away saw a large head upreared, which he likens to that of a bulldog. It kept this position for about 10 minutes when it disappeared, the motion of the rushes giving the idea of an animal some 30 feet long. The young man was greatly scared. On a report of the occurrence appearing in the local journal, a party of Euro sportsmen went out to the swamp where they were joined by local residents on horseback. After searching around for more than an hour, They were about to give up when, suddenly, a rustling was heard. And two of the party saw a huge tail, quote, as thick as a man's thigh, disappearing into the large trunk of a fallen tree. Hmm. A shot was fired at the animal, but its effect is a matter of conjecture. Attempts were made to dislodge the bunyip, but without avail. The only result being a small black snake, which was quickly dispatched. I do love that they... (laughs) found this little snake and they were like fuck let's just kill this <laughs> it also kind of sounds like a big fish story like we killed this little snake but uh we saw this other thing exactly yeah um uh night coming on the party retired but will again visit the scene on saturday those who saw the animal describe it as being of a yellow color underneath and a dark brown above as thick as mr Barr's bell topper it is said it is supposed to be an immense serpent such as found in queensland end of quote so as thick as who's what now some guy some locals what was his bell name? topper uh mr Barr. mr um, Barr. 
just trying to picture because it, it sounds completely nonsensical to you. Imagine it being right. said, "Oh, it's as thick as Mister Baz Biltoper," <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, well, that makes less sense." But I can sounds imagine, more real. I can imagine <laughs> yeah. you saying it. Yeah. Uh, Although I I meant to me- I mentioned back, this is going back many episodes now. I had to look up what a Scully Joe is. <laughs> this is going back to the uh, when Springfield Jack showed up in, in uh, Cape Cod or something. Cape Cod, right? exactly. What's a Scully um, Joe? A Scully Joe is a particular dish of cooked haddock. It's a, it's a haddock okay. thing. Fish dish. Fish dish. Scully Joe. And it's only called a Scully Joe in that one town in Cape Cod. No shit. Yeah. That's hilarious. Oh my God. Well, local uh, diction, I guess. Yeah. Weird just dialect stuff. So I don't know what a bell topper is, but apparently the... Oh, you're getting there. I cool. can tell you. Um, basically... It is like a top hat, but a sort of squat one. It's not the old stovepipe kind of Lincoln hat. It's the Mad Hatter hat, if you will. Okay. So sort of squat, but very wide and round, maybe, you know, seven, eight inches in diameter. Gotcha. Um, and about that tall as well. So they're approximating its tail's diameter being about that. And presumably Mr. Barr had a, just a giant head, so it would be even bigger. <laughs> exactly. What we can draw from this story, if we assume it is a true account of an actual experience, is a large and lengthy creature with a, quote, bulldog-like head uh, living in or near water. Again, perhaps like an otter, save for the huge-sounding size. Mm. Um, We can maybe safely assume the size was overestimated, but even 10 feet shy of 30, we're looking at something on the order of a little better than 6 meters in length. It's crazy huge. Yeah. So I'm guessing it wasn't one of the bulldog ants we talked about before. So that seems indeed easy to rule out. I do like the idea of something with a bulldog like face (laughs) rearing its head up and then just holding that pose for 10 minutes. Can't you just Just imagine (laughs) the indignant look of a bulldog just (laughs) just holding its its jaws up in the air just kind of. This is the thing where I was tempted to do that exact thing earlier too, but unfortunately we are an audio only medium. <laughs> we are so professional. <laughs> we're very pantomimers, bad at though. Yeah, we. It's like there's no other way around. Like, while you're telling the story, I just want to go <laughs> for ten minutes. Uh-huh. I think what we'll do is just take a picture of the two of us doing that. And that'll be our post for this week. I like it. That's perfect. Perfect. Um. I can sense that you have more to say, so I'm going to let you do that oh, first. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. So so what do we have here? Um, well, at least to some extent, Australian colonizers from the UK may have brought these monsters with them. Hmm. In Ireland, the Duarku, which translates as water hound, was thought to be a cross between a giant otter and a dog, about seven feet long or around the size of a crocodile. Which, incidentally, is why it is playfully referred to as an Irish crocodile, which also <laughs> sounds like a great mixed drink name. It does. Quick, Jake. What goes in an Irish crocodile? Don't say babies or kittens. <laughs> um, Irish crocodile. It's got to have a lot of bite to it, so something very strong. Whiskey <laughs> seems like a kind of go-to. I'd say two different kinds of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> so we got Jameson and some kind of scotch. <laughs> Uh, it's maybe. the two jaws of the crocodile. <laughs> yes, and then something to make it. Um, crocodiles do a death roll. To uh, oh, to nice. Eating. Okay, so yeah. How can we incorporate? I was even that thinking into... it could be hiding under the surface of something else. Oh, so we could float so two on shots top of, of whiskey it. that two sink of, underneath. Two different shots of whiskey, and then on top of that, a little bit of. I mean, <laughs> Bailey's would float on it, but that'd be disgusting. That's uh, 
fine though, isn't it? <laughs> At this point, it doesn't matter. Um, it needs something to hide. <laughs> yeah, something to hide underneath, and then maybe um, <laughs> you put like shards of glass or metal <laughs> into the, For the teeth. Glass. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You only drink an Irish crocodile once. <laughs> That's more of a pirate voice, I guess. I can't do an Irish accent. Um, that's awesome. Well done. <laughs> We've created a drink. Please don't try that at home. Or if you do, please tell us about it before you're buried underground for dying. We have to make one sometimes. <laughs> at least mine is the shards of glass. I think, I think a safe recipe. Rock candy, maybe. Rock candy. There you go. Yeah. Oh, my God. So two different kinds of whiskey, <laughs> Bailey's to cover, and then rock candy. Oh my god! Oh, that sounds terrible. It sounds like horrible, but it also sounds like that is what an Irish crocodile would be. Darku. If I'm pronouncing that correctly, it's uh, or is it Dovarku or Dovarku? Ku does mean dog, so yeah, so ku, and it's spelled D O B H A R, which might be Dovar. Dovarku? Maybe. Dovarku. Okay, cool. Ku. 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 Oh, ku, man. Right, where the fuck was I? So. Irish crocodile. The Irish crocodile. So there have been many sightings of Dovarku dating at least as far back as 1684. Um, and we can start with that story. Uh, which originates from a uh, low mark area, L O U G H, Lou Low Loch Loch Loch. Uh, that, that's um, the Irish version of Loch, yeah. Oh, okay, Loch Mark area. There is one rarity more, which we may term the Irish crocodile, whereof one as yet living about ten years ago had said experience, had sad experience. Weird. Uh, <laughs> the man was passing the shore just by the waterside and spied far off the head of a beast swimming, which he took to be an otter. And took no more notice of it. The end. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm done with this. But the beast, it seems, uh, lifted up his head to discern whereabouts the man was for ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> then diving, swam under the water till he struck ground. Whereupon he ran, he run out of the water suddenly and took the man by the elbow, whereby the man stooped down, and the beast fastened his teeth in his pate and dragged him into the water where the man took hold of a stone by chance in his way, and calling to mind he had a knife in his jacket, took it out and gave a thrust of it to the beast, which thereupon got away from him into the lake. The water about him was all bloody, whether from the beast's blood or his own, or from both he knows not. Hmm. Again, 1684, so they're doing a good job. Um, <laughs> uh, another old-timey record is that of Miss Walkington um, in the... 1896 edition of the Journal of Royal Society of Anti Antiquaries of Ireland, Wow, in which the creature is described as being a half wolf dog and half fish. Yeah, add another half in there. I, I know, right? <laughs> one half is, so it's a quarter wolf, quarter dog, half, oh, half fish. They put wolf dog as one word. I don't know. It's 75% of a total creature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What the hell am I saying? So, uh, much more recently, Y2K to be exact, uh, Irish artist Sean Corcoran and his wife also claim to have witnessed a sighting of the Duverku in a lake on Ome Island in County Galway. Uh, Corcoran described it as a uh, large, dark, uh, as large, dark, and with orange flippers. The creature, reports Corcoran, swam the width of the lake from west to east in what seemed like a matter of a few seconds. It finally leapt onto a huge boulder and, just before disappearing, 
gave a most haunting screech. Hmm. So there are very large otters in the world, but none approach this size. Um, the largest known species is the Amazonian giant river otter, which fits the description and temperament. Doesn't you know? Don't mess with otters, basically. It will definitely bite your elbow and make you fall down into your knees, and then dig its teeth into your pate. <laughs> and cause you to catch about for a rock before stabbing. Yes. But reaches, uh, the, the giant river otter reaches a relatively modest 1.7 meters, or about five and a half feet in length. What should um, you think about, people usually picture otters as sea otters again. They're pretty tiny. This is a huge fucking otter by comparison. Big old otter, and plenty of otter to mess a person up yeah. on its own. They are carnivores. But I thought it was interesting that the name given to this creature by the indigenous Tupi uh, people is Ariranya, which means water jaguar. Hmm. The Spanish travelers in the region refer to them as Lobo de Rio or Perro de Agua, so river wolf or water dog, respectively, which I just thought was an in intriguing if potentially meaningless tie back to the big old irish otter or boyo theory but wait jake back mm. in australia what was that term the writer used to refer to the otherwise colossal otter beast a bulldog nope the other one i don't remember a bunyip oh right right right, right. yes so that does ring a certain bell i'm sure for you because i said so yep uh the bunyip which is a term meaning devil or evil spirit is a creature of aboriginal legend said to live in swamps, creeks, and other bodies of water around Australia. <laughs> You're desperate for another uh, thing. Yeah. <laughs> you chose um, the most arid <laughs> continent of the, yeah, other than true. Antarctica. I promise. I started in the ocean and then I crawled out because I could not find any good stories. It was like Fair enough. lights and ships going away. And I was yeah. like, these are kind of cool. Aboriginal stories have long told of how the bunyip will wait within or near bodies of water to gobble up people and livestock <laughs> if they wander too close or too far from home at night. During the early days of Australia's colonization, Europeans took the bunyip to be just one more unknown animal awaiting discovery. Mm -hmm. Unfamiliar animal tracks or remains, calls or cries could all be conveniently attributed to it. Physically, though, the bunyip has become a creature of many descriptions. It has variously been reported as having a dog-like face, dark fur, a horse-like tail, flippers, walrus-like tusks, and a duck-like bill. So, hmm. not so much frightening as maybe confusing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it just screams, kill me! <laughs> <laughs> That's the bunyip, don't get near. <laughs> um, one of the first recorded sort of detections, if you will, of the bunyip was in 1818, when James Meehan and explorer Hamilton Hume found enormous bones in Lake Bathurst, located in New South Wales. Um, they described the creature as being similar to a manatee or a hippopotamus. Sometime later, in the mid-1830s, George Rankin discovered fossilized bones in the Wellington Caves, located in New South Wales as well. These would later be identified by British anatomist uh, Sir Richard Owen as the remains of the prehistoric marsupial uh, Diprotodon. So, for those of you who don't know, Diprotodon was the largest marsupial to ever exist. You might think a koala or a wombat, but it was more like the grizzly bear version of a koala or the hippopotamus version of a wombat. It was <laughs> massive, absolutely huge. Hmm. Diprotodon as well almost certainly existed alongside humans in Australia for a time until about 50,000 years ago when, as far as we know, they went extinct. So, again, remember, aboriginals arrived there. 
or their people arrived there, you know, their ancestors, I should say, as of 65-ish thousand years ago, maybe 70. That's a long time ago. Very long long time ago. Very different time in terms of what species would have been around. Indeed. So a large number of bunyip sightings occurred during the 1840s and 1850s, particularly in the southeastern colonies of Victoria, New South Wales, and South Australia, as European uh, settlers extended their reach. On July of 1845, the Geelong Advertiser described the bunyip in great detail, or perhaps more accurately, used many details to describe the bunyip. <laughs> <laughs> this was also the first published Western use of the term bunyip. Yeah. So, quote, The bunyip, then, is represented as uniting the characteristics of a bird and of an alligator. It has a head resembling an emu with a long bill at the extremity of which is a transverse projection on each side, with serrated edges like the bone of the stingray. Its body and legs partake of the nature of the alligator. (laughs) That's such a funny (laughs) sentence. The hind legs are remarkably thick and strong, and the forelegs are much longer but still of great strength. The extremities are furnished with long claws, but the aboriginals say its usual method of killing its prey is by hugging it to death. When in the water it swims like a frog, and when on shore it walks on its hind legs with its head erect, in which position it measures 12 or 13 feet in height. So, total goofus. Uh, The case I'd like to make today is that rather than a matter of cryptozoology, I feel we are getting to watch the intermingling and evolution of rich and deeply embedded cultural memories and heritages. And the unfortunate animal that results, which is a combination of two totally different mythologies indeed indeed exactly. which are themselves a combination of different animals exactly so it's kind of a beautiful thing and that's pretty much my my next thing i've written here is that i'd like to offer that the modern australian bunyip is a kind of new entity that has emerged exactly directly from a folkloric cross so the masterton monster and Euroa beast bear great resemblance to the Devarku and could easily have been the result of a transplanting of what was already a very old and popular bit of sort of spooky Irish folklore at the time. The bunyip, specifically as experienced by the Aboriginal peoples, could just as easily be a pure fabrication or teaching story as it could be the remnant taleified memory of pre-Ice Age megafauna encountered many thousands of years prior. Hmm. Uh, The Aboriginal peoples of Australia today are essentially the survivors of the last ice age around 20,000 years ago. Uh, During the Earth's ice ages, if folks don't know, climatic shifts lead to huge expansions of glacial sheets of ice. This process is gradual, but essentially irreversible without technology. (laughs) There's not much you can do to really stop like a mile high sheet of ice. (laughs) Um, So even if it takes hundreds or thousands of years, it's coming. So as these ice sheets move forward, they eventually push terrestrial life into non-frozen, relatively verdant pockets called refugia. So during the last ice age, Australian Aboriginal peoples were forced, along with all other flora and fauna, into three major regions of refugia. So this would have increased the frequency of encountering large and undoubtedly dangerous megafauna. And much like what we were talking about in episode two with Amazonian Krang, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Mapinguari, haha, the original name, obviously, relatively contemporary Aboriginal tales of the boogeyman-like bunyip could have evolved out of practical cautionary knowledge of highly dangerous megafauna at the time. Many, many, many 
generations ago. Yeah, that was one of three different things I was loving about this story is that you have a combination of different aspects of stuff we've covered already in different times throughout the history of the show so far. We have way back to episode two, you have the Mopinguar, the idea right. of a cultural memory of an extinct kind of megafauna right. and monster stories that would evolve from that. Right. You have European colonizers showing up in a new land and not knowing what the hell's going on and kind of projecting their yeah projecting their own fears into the new place they're coming to and also exaggerating the things they see right a la the anaconda oh yeah there you go right 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 and then you also have the idea of yeah just just cultural stories being applied to new sightings of things and kind of shaping priming people for what they think they're going to see indeed and if I may continue, actually. I'd rather you just stop there. You summed it up pretty nice. <laughs> okay, no, go ahead. The end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by contrast, the bunyip, as experienced by Australian colonizers with its insane description, almost so many features as to be featureless, is more like a kind of folklore jazz. <laughs> <laughs> when Irish and British colonizers heard about Aboriginal tales of the bunyip, I suspect, just as you've said, that their own cultural history may have leaked in when combined with their naivete and fear regarding a new and daunting Australian ecosystem, a kind of grab-bag cryptid was born. Mm -hmm. And accordingly, the confusion of details surrounding the bunyip and the celebration of its status as a kind of cultural icon can be seen in contemporary resampling of that legend. So modern Australians appear to be keenly aware of the laughability of the bunyip. Uh, For instance, there is an Australian 90-cent stamp on which a version of the bunyip can be seen solemnly peering at itself in a mirror saying, what am I? Oh, God. Um, here you go. <laughs> Check it out. Oh, wow. It's got so many. Oh, it's wearing suspenders, too. I love that. It's almost in the art style of, like, frog and toad for me a little it bit. It really is. Anyway, we'll post that up, too. It's actually perfectly square. Maybe that could be the... <laughs> so, there you go. But, um, yeah, so Jake summed it up better than me. The end. one last thing i was going to think of the thing i almost brought up earlier when you were first talking about the bunyip story is if they weren't just making things up outright they were having encounters in the water with something right a crocodile could have been i mean mean, if they've never seen a crocodile before yeah that seems like the most logical of the things we know live in australia that could fit that kind of description lurking in the water would be pretty long i have a thick tail if they happen to see that right um different stuff like that it would be pretty frightening the reference to a bulldog and otter, though, makes me think of sleek, possibly furry, and very stout face. That's another thing. Mm. is a very jolly face. Yeah. Which crocodiles have a decidedly long face. Yes. However, the emu factor, maybe that could be They're a... just like taking a whole different direction. It's a whole new direction at that point, yeah. So, I don't really know what they saw, but they saw something. Mm-hmm. And that's what I got for you. Cool beans. Thank you. Your turn. Okay. <laughs> well, my interpretation of the prompt was the ocean, not just water, which is fine. It's it's more correct, everyone at home. He did it right, I did it wrong. <laughs> That's why I was screaming water. <laughs> the funny thing about this is that it's our show, so whatever we do is right. <laughs> so That's our screaming water. Um, so I'm going to talk about a thing. Uh, the internet is chock-fucking-full of different iterations of this particular story. Oh, yeah. But they're all basically the same. Uh, the variations specifically deal with translations, dates, and chemicals involved in the story. Mm-hmm. There's a version of this particular story on Mysterious Universe, written by Rob Morphy, uh, who can most recently be credited for my Mossman segment about a month or so ago. Oh, the Purple King himself. <laughs> yes, but I thought, eh, I don't really need any more Mauve missive this week. Oh, 
my god. <laughs> That's good. Instead, I got this one from like the it. oddly named uh, LeafEricksonWriting.com. Oh, my goodness. So just someone who writes under the name Leif Erickson. I don't know that his name isn't actually Leif Erickson. Did it you know might he, be. I think he was actually the first one to discover writing. <laughs> yeah, th- that makes sense. Before Christopher Columbus or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> In June of 1947, a distress signal in the Strait of Malacca came from the Dutch merchant ship, the SS Orang Medan. For reference, going into this, the Strait of Malacca is between Sumatra and Malaysia slash Singapore. We sail tonight for Singapore, where all is mad as had us here. I've fallen for a tawny more, took off to the land of Nod, <laughs> drink with all the Chinamen, walked the sewers of Paris. I danced along a colored wind, tangled up a rope of sand. You must say goodbye to me. Boom, boom. <laughs> um, Tom Waits, everybody. Tom Waits in the house. He found. It looked like he found his lyrics very funny this time. <laughs> the Morse code message went as follows: quote, "We float. All officers, including the captain, dead in chart room and on the bridge. Probably whole crew dead." Whoa! What the fuck? <laughs> After a confused series of dots and dashes, two chilling words were understood. Quote, I die. There was nothing more. No more communications with the doomed ship. What the fuck? That's creepy as hell. Yeah. Oh the unsettling God. cryptic distress call was picked up by two American ships, the Silver Star and the City of Baltimore, Ugh. along with Dutch and British listening posts. The listeners quickly tra- uh, triangulated the broadcast and narrowed down the likely location. The Silver Star, being the closest ship, was dispatched, changing her course to locate the distressed ship. After a search of the area, the Silver Star located the seemingly undamaged SS Orang Madan, which was bobbing in and out of sight on the choppy waters of the Moluccan Strait. Hmm. When the crew boarded the ship, they were not prepared for the living horror story they were about to enter. What? The deck of the ship was littered with rapidly deteriorating corpses. Even the corpse of a dog was found. The condition in which the bodies were found was even more disturbing. All sprawled on their backs, faces frozen with a look of terror, mouths and eyes open wide, gaping. Ooh. All the bodies had their arms outstretched in front of them. One crew member of the Silver Star described the dead bodies as resembling horrible caricatures. Yeah, An right. extensive search of the ship was to be conducted as they so, were... So, like, they're lying flat on their backs like this? Or? As they're reaching outward, their mouths wide open. Their eyes, exactly like that, yeah. <laughs> their eyes wide open as well. <laughs> um, scary that's a pretty horrible caricature there why <laughs> thanks i was going for it i hope uh, it sounded horrible too <laughs> it, it, <laughs> an extensive search of the ship was to be conducted as there were no si- uh, there was no sign of survivors anywhere but as the silver stars crew was beginning to organize the search effort a fire broke out in the ship's number four cargo hold forcing the boarding party to evacuate the ship the fire spread quickly igniting something highly combustible in the hold causing a massive explosion which sank the SS Orang Medan before a formal investigation could be completed. This feels like a movie so far. <laughs> is this the movie Virus? You ever see Virus? I haven't seen Virus. It's gross. <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, so basically this ship shows up on the scene, confuses and creeps out everyone, and then just pieces out forever. <laughs> yeah. I did my job, bye. <laughs> yes. Uh, there are uh, as many theories as to what happened to the SS Orang Medan as there are unanswered questions about the case. Mm-hmm. The main question of what happened opens the door to a plethora of other questions. <laughs> Who sent the signal if everyone was already dead or dying instead of trying to get off the ship? Why was everyone frozen with a look of fear on their faces? What were their arms reaching for? Since we don't have the autopsies of the bodies or even photographic evidence to go off of, we can only rely on the story of the rescuers and their eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... 
some different uh, takes on this have been some kind of supernatural occurrence where some unseen force got uh, somehow affected everyone on the ship and caused mm-hmm. them to die in terror. Mm-hmm. Um, well, obviously, a lot of people just freaking out like, oh, it's aliens. Oh, uh, aliens right, happened. Right. Or like crazy pathogen or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, we need to investigate the history of the SS Orang Madan and see what the ship did in its travels before the incident. And that's where we run into problems. There is no nautical record of a ship named the SS Orang Madan. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we throw the entire story out as being a hoax. Ghost ships have a long history on the seas, and depending on the nature of the cargo and the merits of the captain and crew, some prefer to remain anonymous from the taxation and shipping records that legitimate ships follow. Mm. So it could be more of a kind of you know smuggling ship, and that's mm-hmm. why we hadn't wouldn't have any records of them right the most prevalent theory is that the ss orang madan was carrying toxic chemicals possibly smuggled out of japan during the war and stored in china hmm. the story goes that the japanese had a stock supply of nerve gas that they were going to use in world war ii but the tide of the war had shifted before they had their opportunity hmm. knowing what using the gas and then being defeated would do the japanese smuggled the gas to china and then turned it over to america after the war hmm the American military couldn't ship the gas on any transport that would have its cargo reported or on shipping manifests, and the risk oh. of carrying it on a military ship that could be attacked or captured was too great, so they contracted with mercenary shippers to transport the cargo to a military base. Right. Most mercenary ships handle their own security in very effective ways, so capture or destruction wasn't a concern. What should have been more of a concern was the safe and secure handling of poison gases. If the handlers weren't being careful with the cargo... If it wasn't secured correctly on the ship, if the gas got out, there mm. would have been nothing that could have saved the crew on that ship. Mm. As for the fire, if the gas was corrosive, it could have eaten through the hull, reacted with the seawater. Uh, if the cargo was something along the lines of potassium cyanide or nitroglycerin, mm-hmm. both uh, would have become dangerously reactive when combined with seawater. The different versions of this story list different types of cargo. Mm-hmm. Uh, nitroglycerin is one of the more common variations I've seen but also sulfuric acid for some reason, hmm. um, as well as a variety of poison gases along the lines of what this particular version mentions. Right, right. Unlike nerve gas. Um, Ugh, so spooky. Yes. Uh, the range of ideas about the chemicals could be due to a lack of remaining physical evidence. You know, they didn't have a chance to investigate what was happening. Right. And then the ship was gone. It could also be due to lack of chemical knowledge on the part of those who spread the tale. It's like, oh, some kind of awful chemical. Yeah, you don't right, right. Understand much something like, happened. Yeah, uh, you'll probably get to this, but I'm wondering if they have since rediscovered the wreckage. No. Damn. Um, <laughs> I mean, it basically burned up and then sank, so like it was just pretty destroyed. Was um, it a wooden but, ship? I forget. Or, or a- I don't think. I mean, it was in the the uh, mid to late forties, so it would have been a steel, probably steel. I just feel like there would be something left. There should be something left. So we'll get into more of the details about what yeah, should yeah. have been going on. So it could be that people didn't understand enough about chemicals and were just kind of like randomly guessing at what it could be. Just whatever sounded nastiest. I think that's where the sulfuric acid theory comes from because right. it just sounds like a nasty chemical to people who don't know much about chemicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the whole thing could just be bullshit. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. This particular author believes that the chemical idea is a likely one. Mm-hmm. Going back into quotes again. This theory, the chemical leak theory, uh, seems highly plausible. It accounts for almost all the strangeness of the incident, including the reason for the horrified looks on the faces of the men. A nerve gas would surely kill in a horrific way, not a simple, pleasant falling asleep and passing quietly in the night death. Right, right. Another simpler theory is that whatever the ship was carrying, dangerous or benign, stolen or legitimate, it was the <laughs> boilers of the ship that malfunctioned, causing carbon monoxide poisoning to kill the members of the crew before igniting the fire that sunk uh, the ship. Mm-hmm. So the horrified looks could have been an exaggeration from the rescue crew, 
or it could have been from the poisoning itself, like as they were like gasping for breath. Yeah, it could yeah. result in some pretty uh, horrific kind Ugh, of uh, facial so expressions. Creepy. It's hard to say for sure. The main question for both of these stories is, who sent the message, and how were they able to survive the death on the ship long enough to get the message out? Right, right. With all that death around you, you would yeah. think that the same effects would be... You could say that, you know, from wherever the, um, I mean, depending on the deck, like, people lower on the deck would probably die first as the gases leaked upward. Right. And if they, you might imagine that the um, person operating the uh, telegraph might be higher up, so that it might That's last true. longer. So That's it's, true. It's hard to say. Venturing further into the unexplained, ghost ships on the water have been sighted since our ancestors first looked out onto the seas. Vanishing ships, ships sunk long ago, and ships that appear on no radar or satellite images that have been reported throughout history. The main question that needs to be asked is if all the facts of this story are straight. So is this this the main question that needs to be asked? Because this author keeps saying that like five <laughs> or six different things yeah, is right. the main question. <laughs> um, we're told that the ship's name was the SS Orang Madan. <laughs> Which in Malay translates to man from Madan. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we've heard the idea of orang. So there's, uh, you know, orangutan is the uh, old man of the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, the orang pendek is an, a cryptid. Mm-hmm. We've brought it before, which is but like a kind of pygmy human it's type like the, thing. It's like a hobbit man, person thing yeah. that he talks about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Madan is a city on the island of Sumatra, not far from where the incident was alleged to have taken place. If the name of the actual ship was corrupted with individuals involved, then no serious discoveries could take place. Luckily, others have researched the ghost ship heavily. One account of the ship appeared in the May 1952 copy of the Proceedings of the Merchant Marine Council, which is hmm. published by the United States Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. I tried like hell to track down a digitized version of this particular issue, mm-hmm. but I could not. It's from an article in that issue entitled, We Sail Together. Ooh. And it described this whole same spooky story. Um, the testimony therein described the alarming state of the Dutch crewmen and the events that surround the ship. Author and historian Roy Banton has done some of the most extensive and exhaustive work on the investigation of the SS Orang Madan. He met with dead end after dead end as he explored all the normal avenues of tracking down ocean-going vessels, mm-hmm. finding nothing in Lloyd's Shipping Registers, the Dictionary of Disasters at Sea, 1824-1962, to <laughs> the Dutch shipping records in Amsterdam, or the Maritime Authority in Singapore. Hmm. Banton was about to write the entire incident up as a hoax, but he was contacted by someone who claimed to have information about the case. Oh, my goodness. Professor Theodor Seersdorfer of Essen, Germany, had also been pursuing the case for the better part of 50 years. Wow. And was the person to reveal the names of the two American ships that heard the SS Orang Madan's cries for help. Hmm. How did he find that out? Good question. Uh, Seersdorfer showed Bainton a German booklet written by Otto Mielka in 1954 with the translated title of Death Ship in South Sea. Spooky. The booklet contained details about the SS Orang Madan's route, engine power, and supposedly the captain's name. Mm-hmm. The booklet also revealed the date, 1947, for when the disaster took place. This is all reported in 1948. Okay. The story of the SS Orang Madan also appeared three times in a Dutch-Indonesian newspaper, the Lokomotif, um, I don't know, French or Dutch, uh, I don't know, or Indonesian. In Malay. <laughs> um, February 3rd, 1948, February 28th, 1948, and March 13th, 1948. Uh, the second and third articles contain the descriptions and experiences of a supposed sole survivor of the mm. SS Orang Madan crew, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a man who was discovered by missionaries and natives in the Marshall Islands. Oh my goodness. The man tells a tale of the crew carrying sulfuric acid that was badly stowed in the cargo hold, hold number four, 
and the crew perished because of the gases from the broken containers. That would do it. Bad news for anyone on board. Yeah, it would. Be a very painful, horrible death, too. Yes. Uh, according to the unnamed survivor, the SS Orang Madan was sailing from a small Chinese port to Costa Rica and intentionally avoiding the authorities. The man died shortly after telling this story. I picture him dying the moment he finishes the <laughs> last like sentence <sighs> of the story. Right. <laughs> uh, notably, many versions of the story do name him as Silvio Sh- uh, Shirley of Trieste. Trieste? Trieste. I think it's in Italy. Silvio hmm. Scherley or Shirley? I don't know. I'll say Shirley. And he doesn't die in every version of the story. But don't call me Silvio. <laughs> <laughs> the truth to this story has been lost like so many other truths. To the bottom of the sea. Oh, God. You know, the place where truths go to die. <laughs> uh, we might never know what actually happened to the SS Orang Madan, what she was carrying, or why she sank. But there are, I guess if, if it's the man from Madan, it would, be, it would actually be a he. <laughs> they always call ships she. Oh, um, true. There are enough clues to form theories as to what happened. In this modern day and age, we don't give a second thought to ships on the sea or closer to home for us, semi-trucks on the highway. There are strict shipping and handling regulations in place to keep everyone safe. As long as those regulations are adhered to, we should have nothing to worry about. But when someone wants to make a quick buck or decides to transport cargo without the proper safety measures, that's when we need to be careful, or we might witness another incident like the SS Orang Madan. Spooky. If we don't take the necessary precautions, we too could end up frozen dead and blown up on the bottom <laughs> of the ocean. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. I guess that's true. Yeah. So, what uh, happened? <laughs> What happened? Uh, I think we're more than ready to ignore the idea of this being a supernatural occurrence. Yep. Um, probably wasn't aliens either. Nope. Um, so let's instead discuss the likelihood of this being a simple shipping accident. Yep. Like if it were indeed just like chemical spilling and stuff, it could just be a scary thing that happened. I mean, the like you said, the whole beginning part of the story does sound like a movie where you right. have like these really cryptic, very ominous messages of distress. Exactly. Uh, especially ending with I die. It's so perfect. Um, yeah. Then showing up to find an entirely dead crew, dead <laughs> the, in really frightening ways. The rest of the uh, Morse code was just spilling out pool of blood, pool of blood, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was in uh, the Holy Grail, um, the castle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps he died while coughing it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. We wouldn't chisel out Og. <laughs> perhaps he was dictating. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. So there's one last piece to this puzzle, mm-hmm. and it is the manner of the story's retelling. Mm-hmm. Specifically, it's having been first told in 1940, not just in 1948, which is the uh, the popular version. But one 1940, that's seven years before it was ostensibly said to have occurred. Exactly. So I will refer lastly to a page from skittishlibrary.co.uk. Skittish. In the first version of the story, the ship is some manner of warship as are the contacted vessels. This would have been squarely during World War II, it was 1940. Mm-hmm. And instead of being near Sumatra, the incident occurs near the Marshall Islands, which is like 1,500 miles away or something. I know it's, it's mm. over 1,000 miles away. M- up um, closer to Japan, Hawaii-ish. In that direction, yeah. That direction. Of, it's, it's definitely North, yeah, northeast. northeast. Yes. More yeah. um, out into the Pacific at large. Right, right. Uh, in this first version of the story, the telegram says, quote, SOS from the steamship Orang Madan. Beg ships with shortwave wireless to get touch doctor. Urgent. And then, probable second officer dead. Other members' crew also killed. Disregard medical consultation. SOS, urgent assistance warship. Hmm. Um, in this mm-hmm. version, the ship then gave her position and ended with the final incomplete message. Crew has... 
than nothing else. Ooh, that one's spooky too. It's still spooky, but a little bit less overtly spooky. Yeah, right. Suppose there was no need to mention warships the next time the story was dusted off in post-war 1948. Mm-hmm. Another notable difference is that the story claims to come directly from a merchant marine officer from the rescuing ship, not a wash-up survivor from the sunken ship telling his story to a missionary. Mm. That rescuing ship wasn't named here, and for that matter, it wasn't named in the 1948 version either. The detail of the Silver Star as the name of a ship uh, was thrown in later down the line on its oh, journey wow. from newspaper report to legend. But, <laughs> like, this, I like that. Uh, but, and this is all still quoting, and I think this is the crux of the story, we have the same detail that the information comes from Trieste, so that particular you know place in Italy, I think is where it's supposed to be, oh, it was dated sure. that very Thursday morning as well. In other words, the same day it appeared in the evening paper. Okay. Trieste is the crucial link, as we can therefore assume that Silvio Shirley of Trieste is the same person involved in this story as he was in the later version. Hmm. If he was the source of the 1940 story, there's simply no way he could have truthfully reported on the matter in 1948, describing it as a new incident. Right. The same kind of story wouldn't happen to him two different times. He's like trying out different versions of this. Basically. Uh, it could be the case that there was another Horror. source of the story in Trieste in 1940. Perhaps someone who told it to Silvio, mm-hmm. and he retold it later in 48. Right, true enough. That's a possibility. If the story came from Indonesia, say, then the stories could be numerous. But Trieste seems too specific and too distant to have many witnesses or other people who knew about the story from far away. Mm-hmm. So you could have a bunch of people retelling a similar sound story from kind of where it's supposed to have happened. But to go all the way to Italy and have the same, basically the same story come out two different times, eight years apart. Right. It's got to be the same damn thing. Yeah, right. Um, it seems a likely theory that this romance of the sea began and ended <laughs> with Mr. Shirley. And if so, perhaps he got the taste for embellishing his story as the years went on. Adding the staring eyes and gaping mouths and changing the location Mm -hmm, went mm -hmm. from being near the Marshall Islands to closer to Singapore and stuff. Potentially for a mid-century America, an even other -er place, too. Yeah, having not just be kind of on the open ocean, but being more like near areas they're just not familiar with at all. Just a total abstraction, yeah, for people, which is usually scarier. In the end, my, this author's uh, theory, is that Silvio didn't quite get the notoriety he sought the first time around. The news buried by the events of the ongoing world war. Right. Perhaps he sat on it until the war ended. World news quieted down and tried again. Mm-hmm. But maybe there's more still to be found in how this story got off the ground. Either way, don't believe everything you uh, everything you believe. I wrote the wrong. Don't believe everything you believe. That was my thought. I wrote that kind of I liked it. I liked it. Either way, don't believe everything you read in the papers. Mm-hmm. So great. He, Some he, fake news. He missed. Yeah. <laughs> He missed an opportunity to save the story set sail instead of off the ground. But That's true. Yeah. You have a whole seafaring story and go into flying. Son of a bitch. Man, I hate that guy. I hate that guy. But yeah, that was. it's very creepy, but I, I think that's totally accurate that it's going to be just this guy's tale, basically, at yeah. the end of it all. It's funny. I At first, was looking, looking at all the different places the story has been retold. That's why I mean, I ended up settling on the one that I did because it was right. kind of the most straightforward with all the details intact. Right. Um, and the least amount of flowery language. I did just read a little bit of the Mysterious Universe version and it, it gets out, out of hand. Oh, I bet. But not nearly as badly as the primary document. I was like, maybe I'll just read one of the original newspaper articles. Newspaper articles no, talking about this kind of thing in like 1948. Whoa, were they over the top? Like, it's just so. I would almost love to hear a little bit of one if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, let me find. Um, all right, this is from the, it's called Secrets of the Sea. It's from the Albany, New York Times, 
Times Union? I don't know. It's a newspaper from Albany, New York in 1948. Mm. In the Malay tongue, Orang Madan means man of Madan, and it is bad luck to give a vessel a name denoting the masculine gender. A ship is always a woman. Keep that in mind. <laughs> in the dawn, this vessel, named of ill fortune, is standing down the Strait of Malacca for the Java Sea, apparently having cleared Madan under cover of darkness. Aboard her are at least 23 men, a white captain and a conglomerate crew native to the islands of and about Indonesia. She is grimy and salt-scalded. She is <laughs> deep with a cargo of God knows what and bound for God knows where. Oh She'll make God. a course across the Java Sea and the Arafura Sea, through thin-lipped Torres Strait and so into the Coral Sea, and easterly over the watercourses between myriad islands of the South Pacific on a lane few steamers use. <laughs> These things you make of her and you also keep in mind. We will glimpse her but once again, too briefly, on a June afternoon a month later. She has moved steadily east, southeast, on a trans-Pacific course south of the equator, past the Solomons, past the Santa Cruz group, into that region of the South Seas where Lloyds of London says nothing can happen. <laughs> Something has obviously happened to the Orang Madan, because she is no longer moving at all, except as vagary of wind and current. No <laughs> smudge of smoke shows above her stacks. She lies broadside to the light breeze and the surface drift of a hot and placid sea over one of the ocean deeps, out of sight of any island. She has developed a slight list, and ominous silence envelops her. No life shows aboard. <laughs> one lifeboat is missing from Davit's swung outboard. And then it just proceeds from there into the main story. So it has Enjoying all this prelude its, uh, to the... Yeah. yeah, right. All build up. Yes. <laughs> you can tell someone was just having a field day yeah they had a huge just like sea ghost story boner the whole time right exactly <laughs> next says dead oh, at their yeah. posts that pros dead at their posts unwounded their features fixed in a nameless terror of agony like her captain and 21 members of her crew at least one man has got away and it continues from there i was gonna say so, I'm like i hope they got their math right oh, okay he got away <laughs> <laughs> So the uh, I went through a bunch of different like stories of um, I found like five different top ten stories of like spookiest haunted like ghost mm-hmm, ship things mm-hmm. and then looked at the ones that sounded the least ridiculous and most potentially plausible and also found like this one happened to occur on most of the like, I think every single one of the list had the Orang Madonna on them right right sounded really creepy but also sounded like it could be a, a pretty logical rational solution. And then it turned out to be probably just a made-up uh, tall tale from tall the guy tale. who wanted to uh, make something cool. I can dig it. And I actually I appreciate it so much that your story wound up being one about a sort of spooky ship situation because I had found another spooky ship situation, but in chatting with you ahead of recording, <laughs> you suggested that given your tale, I should go with the cryptid angle. Yes. And Thinking I'm glad you were going to do a sea monster. <laughs> And I how have, wrong I how was. How wrong you were. <laughs> is a freshwater adjacent <laughs> beast. <laughs> and yet I still enjoyed the hell out of it. Noise. And I enjoyed yours as well. That's my a good noise. Song. Now that's a noise. <laughs> that's a joke no one will get except for a handful of people listening. Sean, if you're listening, buddy, we miss you. <laughs> we miss you, friend. Well, that's what you get for a week off. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Get used to this, because this will be how they are now for a little while. Especially because we usually are used to having our, all of our beer intake for the week be on these Monday recordings. Mm-hmm. Now we're basically going to be doing two weeks worth every other Monday. It's true. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, that'll be good. Good listening. Good listening. Love you guys. <laughs>
Miss you. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys so much for tuning in again. Um, if you have any stories that you want told or would like to share, please reach out at contact at superduperstitious.com. Um, we can also be reached through our Instagram at superduperstitch, I believe. No, that one's just superduperstitious. Superduperstitious. The Twitter is superduperstitch, right? Correct. At superduperstitch. I can't even say it anymore. Super duper stish. Super duper stish. And then we can also be reached through Facebook and all the other things. That's actually it, right? There. You just listed all the things that all there the are. All the other so. things. We're on Bomber. You can, send, We're on. you can send a letter to my mailbox. Actually, we had at least one that was that, so. That's true. Yeah, it's, that's so true. If you know my home address, feel free to send us mail. That's right. Please do. But please don't try and find it if you don't know it. <laughs> yeah, because that's creepy. But yeah, thank you guys so much for tuning in, and uh, we'll catch you in another couple weeks. Yup. Till then. This bye. Is w- bye. <laughs> <laughs> we sail tonight for Singapore. Don't fall asleep while you're ashore. Lost your heart and hope to die. When you hear the children cry, let marrow bone and cleaver choose while making feet for children's shoes. Back from hell when you hear that steeple bell. <laughs>